Hey everybody, this is Brian coming at you from late 2022. You're about to listen to one of the original episodes of the Internet History Podcast, a project I started way back in 2014. It eventually became a book called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, written by me, but these are the original chapters and interviews I did for that book. So here you have all the original oral history interviews, the original players of the internet era in their own words. You'll get hours more detail and stories here than I was able to even fit in the book. If you like this podcast, buy the book, but also the podcast stand on their own. Almost 300 hours of original source material of internet history. They've been downloaded about 3 million times over the years. And if you like what you hear here, search and subscribe to what I do today, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, a daily tech news podcast I've been doing since 2018. Basically, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast is the history of the internet every day in real time. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 3, Supplemental Episode 2, an interview with Jan Brandt. Jan Brandt is a legend in the world of marketing. She single-handedly led the famous AOL carpet bombing campaign that put millions of AOL trial discs and CDs into everything from magazines to popcorn boxes to banks. AOL was able to leap to the front of the online pack over competitors such as CompuServe and Prodigy, largely on the success of this campaign. Jan tells us about how this strategy developed, the thinking that went into it, and goes into great detail about what worked and what didn't. But she was also a very early AOL executive, so she is able to finally give us some fantastic background about AOL the company, its culture, its people, its visionaries, people like Steve Case. And so she takes us from AOL's beginnings through its considerable growing pains, remember America on hold, its rise to dominance in the dot-com era, and she even gives us her perspective on the legacy of the AOL-Time Warner merger, which we will be talking about in a future chapter. Jan Brandt, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So uh, at the risk of buttering you up right at the top, um, you're, uh, you're really a bit of a marketing legend. And so I wondered if you could start off by giving us a bit of a background in terms of your education, um, you know, getting into the marketing field, uh, who your influences and your mentors were, that sort of thing. 
Sure. Um, I, I fell into the marketing world in, in one way. I think sometimes I think I, I came out of the womb marketing. I said the in, in later years. But um, in my undergraduate studies, I was studying at uh, Boston University School of Public Communications um, and really in journalism. And we had a lot of free form kind of projects and I had where we could sort of choose the discipline that we wanted to work in. And one of my professors actually later became the dean pointed out to me that I kept doing projects in advertising and did I want to consider going into advertising and marketing? And I said, no, I really don't that um, I did projects in that area because I wanted to understand something that was trying so hard, hard to control our lives and persuade us. So I actually came to marketing more from a um, social psychology viewpoint of really wanting to understand, um, really wanting to understand what motivates large groups of people. Uh, in later days, I would say I want I want to make like lots and lots of people do what I want them to do essentially in terms of marketing or persuade them in certain directions, mm-hmm. but I don't really want to talk to any of them individually um, <laughs> that, I, that I'm more behind the scenes. Uh, my first job was at uh, Xerox education publications, which famously published my weekly reader, uh, which was the largest classroom publication and probably the largest publication in the country Right. At that point, along with a lot of other school publications and products for home. And that's where I found my earliest mentors, you know, people like Pierre Passavant, um, a very famous, very famous and rightly, rightfully so marketer. He and I became friends. Um, Kathy Howes, my first boss. Um, Bob Quigley, who I worked with. For, I think we figured this out. We worked together 50% of my career back and forth. And sometime, most of the time him being my boss and sometimes me being him bo- his boss, like at AOL. Um, Tom Ryder. I was really, um, when I look back on my career, I was really blessed with always having wonderful, smart, engaged people who took an interest in me. And, you know, as, as a side note, it's probably the reason why I do so much mentoring and I still do and always did at AOL or any of my previous jobs is that I really felt blessed that that you know these people would were interested in me and interested in in helping helping my career along and giving me advice and and when I think about some of the things that you know a 22 year old would ask you know, a senior vice president of marketing and have the, you know, sort of chutzpah to go into his office and ask. Um, and I sit back and think of those things and how um, I can't remember any time that I've reached out to someone um, at any level for some kind of support and and didn't get it uh, in every job, at a later job at Colonial Pen Group, um, someone named John Colonna, certainly, um, uh, when I went to uh, education group, it, it, we had for a small little company uh, that that was of under $10 million in revenue, we had an all-star cast of, um, I had taken over John Klingel's job, John Klingel being, uh, you know, one of the, one of the godfathers or grandfathers of, of publishing. Um, and he and I to this day remain great friends. Tom Ryder, who went on to a series of of um, very significant jobs culminating with, you know, vice chairman of Reader's Digest. 
um, still people, all people I keep still keep in touch with. So, you know, those were, those were some of my earliest mentors and then people that I worked with, the, the, the vendors, I was able to befriend vendors. I got, I get into jobs where sometimes I had no idea what I was doing in certain aspects of the job. Um, and I really counted on vendors to so selecting good vendors and having them educate me. And in return, they, um, they received a huge amount of loyalty from me. Um, uh, and, and, and we became friends. So I learned a lot from a lot of the vendors that I worked with. Paradise and Material was one. Um, there was, there was one person in, um, uh, out in Chicago, um, uh, uh, Mr. Palmer, who, uh, taught me a lot about, uh, you know, some of the technical aspects of direct marketing. And these are people that, you know, I came to trust over the years, and they'd be they'd be my go-to people whenever I went to a new job. So it was smart on their side, but it was also that they were really um, they're really good people. And I and I know I've, I I know I've left out a few people along the way, but um, I really I really was truly blessed in in that regard. So, what was the path that led you to AOL? Did you have any sort of uh, uh tech or tech background or experience with online services uh at this point i i did but i think that what led me to aol i, I mean the literally what led me to aol was john klingle was serving on a board with jim kimsey and you know jim was was early founder of aol and the chairman of aol at that point and john klingle and i had worked together for many years and or a number of years in california uh and uh Jim asked John Klingel, you know, if, if he knew of someone who was a top marketer. And John said, to, told Jim to, that the only person he should interview was me. So that's what literally that led me to AOL. But more internally, what led me to AOL is, um, or what led me to be interested in it is, um, I, sometimes, I sometimes reflect that if, if, um, if, AOL hadn't found me, I would have invented it. Um, I'm certainly not the visionary that Steve is, but I would have invented it from a consumer viewpoint in that um, I loved AOL. I loved online services. Uh, probably the first time I ever experienced uh, you know, the Internet was at the MIT labs you know, in, in uh, many, many, many years ago, uh, and where, where someone showed me two people sort of talking to each other, and we're talking about you know, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to, you know, being out in California and someone showing me CompuServe and that had to be in the early eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I did have that, but I also was, I had, I was the first one to have everything, even though I'm a female, I mean, I was really an early adopter. You know, I had the first VCR, I had like the first, um, um, cell phone that was as big as, as a suitcase. I had, uh, computerized companies, um, I, I understood, and I, I'm not a technical person at all. In fact, I, I, I strive not to be technical because I want to be about the consumer. Um, but I had always an appreciation for the technology, and probably the first, you know, the first company I computerized was probably um, had to have been about 1981 or 1982. 
Um, I had a compact computer that I probably should have given to someone, uh, but threw out a number of years ago. That was the transportable. I was so proud. I brought it home with me on an airplane. I could stuff it into the luggage compartment, uh, but it weighed like 33 pounds, and the screen was about six inches big. Uh, and that was the first computer I bought out of my own money for over three thousand dollars back in nineteen eighty four. Yeah, I just I, I interviewed um, Rod Canyon of, of uh-huh. Compaq about because you know that ties into the Halt and Catch Fire show. So yes, we know exactly what you're talking about. And so I was, you know, so I, I computerized a, a, a marketing consulting firm that that I was running at that point out in California. Um, when I later went to field. The whole company was on uh, IBMs and PCs, and I was running, at that point, the advertising market. So that was in the uh, late 80s, the job just prior to going to AOL. And, I mean, I fought a huge, huge, huge headwind recognizing that the advertising group really needed to be on max, and we needed to decentralize. And we were at the forefront of decentralizing all of the processing that goes on in putting together advertising and images and, and so forth. Um, so while I'm not a technical person, you know, I, I, I have to rank up there for people who have always appreciated the technology. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you do arrive at AOL, um, you know, roughly is this, this is 91, 92. What, what's, the, what's the company like at this point? Um, it was 1993. It was Great. March 1993. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a company had just gone IPO the prior fall, I believe it was, or spring. And um, wow, it was a little bit like the Wild West. I was, I, I think we figured out at some point that I was the 150th employee. Um, you know, the culture. I sort of liked it. I thought that I was a great bridge because I had worked in both small companies and large companies. And this was a small company try, and I, I, trying to become a big company uh, or, or trying to scale. And there really is a very different culture between small companies and, and big companies. And, and you know, I, I almost always favor a smaller company. Um, but it was... You know, I walk in there. I was the first one to have an assistant. Um, and that came from a discussion that I had with Steve saying, you know, I am willing to work 24-7, but not making photocopies. Um, that, you know, if I'm going to be in the office at 10 o'clock at night, it's got to be because I'm doing marketing plans and strategy and managing people and not, you know, being a hero basically for or a heroine basically, for doing things that uh, aren't productive. So it, it actually caused quite a stir. That actually, I, that leads me to a question. The, sure. You know, did AOL at this time have what, in retrospect, we would think of as, you know, the, the stereotypical uh, Silicon Valley startup culture in the sense that it was 24-7? Yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I, um, you know, I would and, and and I wasn't alone so I'm using me as the example but you know this was became fewer and fewer people as time went on as we got bigger but in the beginning yeah I, I mean I get into work at first I used to get into work at eight o'clock because that's what I used to have to do in my uh, prior job but no one was there 
at eight o'clock in the morning. I mean, mm-hmm. to, and in fact, my my staff got really upset about calling meetings at nine o'clock in the morning. So I I ultimately went um, to that, and, and you know, we get in, you know, maybe nine thirty, ten o'clock in the morning, and my goal at night was to leave in time to get back to my, at that time, a furnished apartment um, in time for the last um, delivery from takeout taxi so that I could actually have something to eat um, because I would be too tired to, I'd be too tired to cook. Mm -hmm. So it would be, you know, sort of me and my, me and my dog sitting in bed eating cold pizza. Um, And I, I, um, um, I don't think that was uncommon. Mm-hmm. In fact, let me put it the other way. I think I think it was common. I think in the early days, um, people people who had families and other obligations, you know, at that time, I think they just brought this stuff home with them. Um, I used to email in the middle of the night. I mean, I was I was probably as crazy as anyone in this regard. I don't. I, I hate to say I was more crazy. Um, Matt Corn um, uh, was the person who in technology that was responsible for building out the network and, and still a wonderful friend. Uh, we used to have meetings at three o'clock in the morning. Um, he'd be, I, the only difference is I'd be doing it. I'd be in bed on my computer and, you know, he'd be, he'd be in the offices on some, you know, firefight. Um, so yeah, that was absolutely, that was absolutely the culture. It was 24 seven, um, you know, on my part, you couldn't, people, a vendors especially want to take you out to lunch to dinner. I, I wouldn't know. I ate at my, I ate at my desk. Um, I didn't have time. So f- for your, for your job specifically marketing the service, you know, at this point, it's sort of, um, a multi-horse race with, with CompuServe, with Prodigy, with others. Uh, how much, was the priority uh, staying ahead of the others, leapfrogging the others, and how much of it was just simply educating the public on this new product, what it was, and and if we can just get it in front of people, we can maybe we can convince them to give it a try. Sure, um, we were actually it wasn't a matter of staying ahead at that point. If you're talking about the early days, we mm-hmm. were uh, third or fourth, uh, depending on who you want to count among those. If you count Jeannie. Um, in, in addition to CompuServe and Prodigy, we were probably, I think, a little bit bigger than Genie when I c- came on board. Um, but we were way behind. We were way behind uh, Prodigy and CompuServe. Um, you know, I wasn't. The direction I was given was to grow the business, and you know, that's really that's really what I focused on, and so. You know, I first set my sight on, I think at the time, Prodigy um, was was a little bit smaller than CompuServe at that point. I first set, set my sights on Prodigy. Um, the way the the way the marketing came came about was a little bit of what you said in terms of, you know, show them. It was it was basically sitting there and looking at advertising and realizing that um, it's really easy now. We sit in front of a computer and we know what a, we, we all have computers at home. And we all have smartphones, but you have to stop and go back to a time when that just didn't exist. The penetration of uh, 
computers in the home was tiny. Was- I, I actually just the other day ran across a figure that said that as late as 93, or maybe it was 94, only about 23 or 24% of American homes even had a computer, much less a computer with a modem at that point. I think that it was less than that. I, 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 I believe the statistic that you have, but I think it was less than that, because that was during a period when offices were still gearing up. You know, 100% of the offices, or probably 75% of the offices didn't have it. And, and people's first introduction to computers uh, was really through the office and email and through, you know, internal kinds of things that that that, that we were doing. I think at uh, the company I was at prior to AOL, I had gotten onto Prodigy um, because, you know, I was interested in the technology but also I was watching it as potentially an advertising vehicle for our products. Um, but I think that just using that company as an example, I think that we probably didn't computerize the company until about 90, um, 1990 or so. Um, in terms of just even, and, and we're not talking about, you know, using the internet in any way, we're just talking about internal kinds of things. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I believe your number is at 25%, but I, it sort of goes against what my recollection was. Right. Um, and, you know, so, so you know, going back to the advertising and the marketing is, is how do you describe to someone, if you close your eyes and you try to blank out the existence of everything that you know now that has become so integrated into your life, but you say, okay, someone's sitting at home and you're right about there were no modems because I could tell you what the most the, what what the best ad we had at the time was, um, which I'll get to in a second. But you know, describing to someone that you're sitting in front of your computer, something that they don't really do that much to begin with, and you can talk to someone, you can actually type to someone, and they'll get the message. And people would say, "Well, why don't I just pick up the phone?" All right, so, you know, you can um, sit with your kids and look up facts and information to do kids' homework on, you know, the encyclopedia. And you say, well, I have an encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. It, really, it really became difficult for people to imagine something that they didn't have any context for. And so that's really, uh, I believe, was one half, uh, probably more than one half, of why the uh, CDs and the floppies initially distribution became such a wildly profitable uh, way of doing it. I think the second reason um, was that at that time we were doing floppies. At that time, um, floppies had a value. They weren't cheap. Mm -hmm. I think if you went to the store, they probably cost, you know, 10 or 20 bucks for, you know, a 10-pack. And so the fact that you're getting a floppy disk in the mail for free felt like it had some value. Um, the next thing, which is you know just coming out of pure marketing and, and from some work that I had done previous in a, in, in a company prior, was I felt that we started packaging them in boxes and tins and, and things like that. It was my absolute belief um, it was at my absolutely belief that you could not send someone a package in the mail. And I don't mean an envelope. Mm-hmm. I mean a package that you could feel I, I, and, and not 
not open it. And part of direct marketing and a big part of it is getting people to open, uh, getting people to, to open your, your package, your mail. Uh, I felt that it was constitutionally impossible for someone to get a small box in the mail and not be inspired to open it. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, also uh, we also were able to track how many times we mailed someone before they um, it, before they actually signed up. So, you know, the notion of the carpet bombing, I know it felt that way and, and I giggle about it and everyone makes a joke about it. Um, but I could tell you at that point, uh, I could tell you exactly precisely how much it cost me to get you as a subscriber after I sent you, you know, that, that, that particular disc. So it, there was a huge... Uh, there was a huge amount of uh, data crunching and data analysis. I mean, I sort of laugh now when people talk about, you know, everything on the Internet being data driven now. Uh, well, everything on the Internet when I was there <laughs> was data driven. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was just the explosion in the market um, in terms of AOL's popularity and, you know, the adoption of uh, home computing. Um, and, you know, we're certainly riding, riding and pushing, um, the curve on that, that made it so, made it such that all of those discs were wildly profitable for you to mail. I didn't mail any, any that were not profitable or put them in, you know, right. retail outlets or, and, and if I, and if they were unprofitable, I stopped doing it. Well, let me, let me cycle back just a bit to set this sure. up. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong in, in any of these uh, details here, but Prodigy Wright spent a lot of money on, on things like television ads. Right. Um, but you guys go in a different direction that, that's, that starts... It, does it start out with direct mail? Had you done any direct mail before this? Um, uh, AOL definitely had done direct uh, had done some direct mail be, uh, before. And I think, you know, I think, you know, I was brought in... Um, I was brought in in part because of my prowess in 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 those areas. Okay, so in Kara Swisher's book, she sort of describes a scene where you go into Steve Case one day and right. you say, "Okay, I want to do this, but I want to do this big time. It's going to cost a lot of money." Right. And he sort of laughs you off, but but says, "Okay, go ahead, knock yourself out." Yeah, I I mean. I, I'd have to say that that's literally correct, but the nuance is a little bit is a little bit off. Um, I mean, that literally did happen. It was actually a phone call, and the campaign was going to cost two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and that was our first campaign, and it was a lot a lot of money for us at that time. Um, you know, St- Steve teased me that it wasn't going to work. I mean, he 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 has you know something of a uh, a dry wit, but he backed me completely. You know, he backed me on that. He backed me on the next millions of dollars, um, and and the and, and the race, you know, race to go forward. He was he was um, absolutely supportive of every of everything I did. So I mean, that was a it, it was a tease. Yeah, go try it. You know, I, I think I, I think in a way it was like laying down the gauntlet a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that I, I think that he believed that um, either believed that it would work or believed that. Um, there wasn't much to lose, you know, by trying. Mm-hmm. So let's go into some of the details. Um, you, 
at, at the very beginning, this is before CDs, so you're you're you're, right. you're Floppy. doing floppies. Um, and is it true that that you had to push to keep the software small enough that it could fit on one right. floppy? Yeah, I was crazed about that. I mean, there was a lot of struggle internally because the software was becoming more and more complicated um, as as we got more and more complicated and offered offered more services. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't allow it to go onto two floppies because it's um, it's all about the consumer stupid. It really is. Um, and making it easy and take a, taking away barriers is what good marketing has to do. And I, I really felt that um, I felt that having it on two floppies and having people have to manipulate that um, too much would just be a barrier or lose one. Right. right, or lose one, or not know which. I mean, you know, which we're talking in in some instances back in days when I did focus group research, and someone took a. We're watching this, and someone takes a a, a computer mouse, and is pointing it at the computer like a like a remote control, mm-hmm. and wondering why nothing's happening. And one person took it on and put it on the floor and tried to use it like a sewing machine pedal. <laughs> um, these are people who would call into customer service and say, well, now, now you and I are on Skype now, so so maybe it was more more forward thinking, but at the time saying, can you see me? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so did you, did you target known computer users first? Um, I couldn't get it known. Uh, yes and no. Uh, in certain channels, I was able to target known computer users. Um, and in other channels, I had to inf- in, in most channels, I had to infer computer users. And what is what is the uptake like? Is it is it good right away? Does it start to lead you in directions that that makes it better for you over time? Oh, I um, I've done a lot of first campaigns and launched a lot of products. And this obviously wasn't a launch of a product. Um, though it felt that way in a little bit in, in, in some ways, um, I have uh, no, this. W- this was beyond imagination in terms of of this campaign. Um, this campaign, I had lists that um, now understand that these were these were not just. I, I selected the lists that I thought would be close in, and the whole objective. Um, in my marketing is if you can think about the marketplace as being concentric circles with the first inner circle being people who are, you know, probably in tech or administrators or uh, programmers themselves or consultants. Um, They already have computers. They maybe they're on prodigy. Maybe they're not, you know, it's people that are sort of prime right there. Um, you know, but there's no list of people like that. You have to sort of, you know, again, infer that. The next concentric circle might be people who um, you know something about them, that they have an inclination towards science or popular mechanics or science today or um, scientific American um, or sports or, you know, you start building the concentric circles out. So when when the first campaign that we did that, you know, I spent a quarter of a million dollars on, which was a large test by direct marketing standards uh, or a costly one. And it cost a lot because I was doing it mostly with the discs as opposed to more conventional mail. Um, 
you know, I, I got in as close to that core as I could infer. And so the overall response to that campaign was a staggering over 10 percent um, uptake. And remember, these are people who are this isn't people saying, I think I want this. These are people who are taking the disk, putting it into the computer, signing up and giving us a credit card. Um, so there's a there's a big distance there. This is not a even though it was a free trial, um, they still had to give us the credit card. So it was a lot of resistance, you know, that they had to uh, or a, a lot of doors they had to walk through to do that. The top list um, on that I have never seen in my life before or since mm-hmm. was a 20 percent response. Well, um, even even ten percent for any kind of advertising or marketing campaign is it was insane. Stratospheric. I mean, when I saw that, honestly, um, it was better than sex. I mean, <laughs> it was it was stratos it was stratospheric. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the problem then the problem then though, as, as happy as I was at that point, is that that was in a fairly confined market and. My goal, you know, throughout my career there was to push those boundaries. Remember, I'm in that little circle in the center of those mm. concentric circles is to push those to bring up mass market and to push those boundaries out, which we had to do. You know, we did little by little. Um, so, yeah, it was an, an it was an amazing thing. But what it really said was, yes, there was a market there and um you know, we chose the list brilliantly. Um, it didn't really say that much about mass market. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is, this will be jumping ahead a bit in terms in terms of time. But so going after the mass market, I mean, you guys were insanely creative. I mean, you know, getting to the era when when there are CDs at Blockbuster, at yeah. banks, and cereal boxes, and things like that. Um, like how how are you how are you guys coming up with with these new channels is it just like we'll try anything if we can if we can get in front of a, a larger mass market before i do that let me tell you let me tell you about how blockbuster was the first one um and and blockbuster to me was really an inflection point um and and it was the first one where i said oh my God, we're really mass market. We're going to be mass market. To me, it was an enormous turning point. And it's worth, um, if I can indulge you in exactly how that happened. Sure. We talked a little bit about how crazy the time was and how it was all work, no play. And so Friday night for me, one Friday night, many Friday nights would look very much like leave work at whatever time drive down to Boston Chicken and almost go grocery shopping because I don't have time to, a desire to cook. So, I, you know, get chicken and enough for like the weekend and vegetables and so forth. And across the street was Blockbuster. And I go and I pick up eight movies at a time. I mean, weekends for me were like watching movies and working. And they had a sample box there if you took three movies you could get one of these boxes free and in the box were things like uh, product samplings like you know maybe a discount coupon on um future blockbuster movies or membership a um, little thing of sample of popcorn little samples of candies you know sort of theater related 
kinds of things. So I walk up to the front desk with my eight movies because I, I don't know what mood I'm going to be in mm-hmm. you know, on Sunday. And I'm not coming out of my house until then. Um, and I look at the person at the register and I said, I've got eight movies. I'm taking two of these boxes. Um, so I took both boxes with me home. Monday morning, I brought them into a very talented, very aggressive um, a wonderful marketer, Margaret Mooney, who was my first vice president of marketing, and handed her the box and said, I want you to get us a disc in here. Um, and she did. And the response to that was about, that first one was about 3%. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we talked about percentages a little bit earlier. And in terms of direct marketing or direct mail, um, we talked about 10%, 20%. Mm-hmm. You know, the percentages really depend on the product and the offer, but sort of a rule of thumb is, you know, you don't, you don't often see responses to mail higher than 1% um, on average. Mm-hmm. In terms of a box like that, like you take one box, Usually, you know, you're happy to see something, and again, depends on the offer and the economics. Uh, usually, you're happy to see something that maybe a 0.3% response, maybe a 0.5% response. So we're we're at 10x, and I'm like, wow! And that was really what started. It was the blockbuster box that put me off to the races and us to the races, and I started a new channel um, that I called. I made up the name of it and I just called it alternative media or alternate media. It was for like everything else that we couldn't fit into a category. Um, And so that, you know, that was, that, that was really, and then it was, and then it was, we will try anything. Mm -hmm. I had, um, I strategically, a lot of companies will separate out a test budget um, or research and testing budget um, in their, uh, marketing budgets. And I don't do that. And I never did that. And the reason I never do that and didn't do that is because it's too easy to hack away at it. And I think that testing is absolutely vital from my earliest days in my career. It was all about testing. It's such a, it's so quantifiable. It would be um, it, it would be idiocy not to be testing all the time. Um, but by not segregating a test budget, the people that work for me always had money to test. Uh, it basically got incorporated into the economics, you know, of the acquisition. So if, if, if it was, you know, if the acquisition cost was, I'll just pick a number because it was anywhere, you know, depending on the channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it was twenty dollars, then maybe you know maybe their budget was was allowing for twenty three dollars, and I didn't care how they got to that twenty three. Mm-hmm. Um, just using that as an example, whether they got to it by cutting costs or cutting testing, that was up to the channel. That was up to the channel manager, mm-hmm. um, and they had to compete with each other uh, for budgeting uh, for for budget dollars. That that makes me wonder um, for for these channels and and these partners. Are you 
is is are you offering bounties is is there a rev share in terms of you know we'll give you a certain percentage of of someone that signs up um in the earliest days in the earliest days i really was against a revenue share because i knew it would work against us and so i held out until we couldn't hold out any longer and, and that was until later later in the game um, when we had, and it was started mostly with computer manufacturers like the Compacts and the Dells and um, the Gateways, who were started. They, they started to see the rec- the magic of recurring re- revenue, and were insisting on getting piece of it, piece of the action. Um, in the earlier days, um, I didn't I didn't do that because I didn't have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I I did it I did it at the point that. I couldn't not do it anymore. So in the early days, um, let's take the Blockbuster box. We paid them, uh, probably paid them a flat fee Mm -hmm. for being in that box for, um, uh, let's take, uh, you know, Barnes & Noble as an example, which was we had them take one boxes and uh, counters in Barnes & Nobles nationally. uh, uh, We were paying them a bounty and that bounty was negotiated every year. And um, one of the changes that I made, um, probably because I was greedy, was when I got there, because some of this was already going on, bounties, um, particularly for um, subscribers we got, we call them packed into or bundled with the computers. Uh, they, we were giving people bounties for that, and I changed it. Um, I, I changed them all to be bounties on conversion, meaning uh, we were giving people bounties for someone taking the trial. Mm-hmm. And I switched that for a lot of them where I could to bounties once the person had made one payment or two payments, whatever we were able to negotiate. But in the later days and the later stages, um, you know, we were we were forced into the recover, giving people a piece of the action. What was actually? This is a two-parter. What was the most unusual channel you tried, and <laughs> and what would have been the most unusual channel you tried that, to your surprise, was successful? Well, I, I have to go back to I have to go back to Blockbuster because that put me into the in, in terms of I had no idea that was really a lark. That was it was really a lark. Um, you know, I, I was standing there and I looked around at the people in Blockbuster on Friday night and they looked like a lot of them had kids and it was cheap entertainment. Um, and we knew that one of the cohorts that was, that, that was important for us in the early days was, um, um, a presence of children in the home. People were buying computers. Frankly, I think. I sort of think in the beginning it was a lot of guys were buying computers and able to justify the expense um, because they had kids and they said, "Well, these this will be good for the kids and for school and for homework and you know." But actually, it was the the, the father that wanted to tinker with the computer. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and so I'm looking in Blockbuster and I'm saying, "Well, okay, there's a lot of there's a lot of guys in here, and I know that a lot of them have kids." Um, so that that was that really was seminal. That really was seminal. Um, but we had so many that was so interesting. One of them, um, uh, one of them was uh, we packaged uh, floppies into 
packages of Omaha steaks. So that sounds interesting all by itself. But what we had to do was flash freeze the floppy, thaw it out because because it had to travel with flash frozen mm-hmm. meat. We had to thaw it out and see if it'd still work, and it did. It survived. Wow. Survived. It survived. Um, we, um, you know, taking a trip into, you know, I'm, I'm talking about my own personal experiences, but I had a department of people doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I, the ones, of course, that I remember the most are probably the ones that I stumbled on. Um, but I has, I, I, I had wonderful, amazing, brilliant, talented staff. And, um, uh, so I, I don't mean to keep being I, 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 mm-hmm. uh, but these are the things that are embedded in my memory, uh, was taking commuter flight into uh, New York City and seeing people, this is, I guess, back at a time when they still served you food, um, and there'd be like a breakfast tray with coffee and a donut or something, and I look around and I say, oh, these are all business people. <laughs> And so we cut a deal with, I think it was American Airlines and United, um, to actually have the flight attendants put a disc on each of the trays or wherever they, the, the trays got packaged up uh, in um, on commuter on, on commuter lines. So that was another one, mm-hmm. um, and and that did that did really well. It's another one that just sticks out in my mind. Um, we went to NASCAR races. We put we put. Uh, discs on seats at, at the Super Bowl. Um, I'm trying to think, I, I, I mean, I can't, I'm sure there were, I'm yeah. sure there were some that didn't work um, along the way. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Um, there's a famous uh, Quora thread um, that by the, time, mm-hmm. by the time you get to the era of uh, AOLs on a, on a CD, that at some point, you know, you've 50% or something crazy like that of all the CDs in production had AOL logos on them because at this point you're, you're everywhere. That's absolutely correct. Um, this was an impossible question to answer, but like, do you have any kind of ballpark idea over the course of years, how much money was spent on, on this level of marketing? Clearly, it's in the hundreds of millions. Did it maybe reach billions or anything like that? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, if you're asking the question in terms of total marketing spend, it was definitely in billions. Um, someone had asked the question, and I, I actually went back and tried to talk to, you know, I'm, I'm still good friends with so many people I work with, tried to sort of come up with some number for what we would have spent on discs. But 
um, or CDs, you know, in total. And the fact is, is, is that, you know, no one had, I asked a couple of people, you know, I had a department CFO and they had a person that was in charge of production and no one, no one had the volume and what we were paying at the time. Um, so I couldn't come up with a number for what it cost in discs, but in terms of, in, in terms of marketing spend, it was definitely in billions. And so cycling back a bit, I mean, this is, this is really the, the thing that helps AOL get traction. The, these, these campaigns, um, to first, you know, leapfrog to, to the head of, of the online services pack. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like when, okay, clearly we're, we're, we're out ahead now. Um, we're looking at Prodigy and CompuServe starting to be in our rear view mirror. Right. Um, someone went at, someone once asked me what kept me up at night. You know, typical question. Yes. Someone in a leader, leadership position. And I say, I wake up every morning worried that I'm going to see Prodigy or CompuServe using the discs the way that we're using them. Um, that I'm going to see it stuck onto the front of a magazine or that I'm going to see it in the mail. Um, and the thing that was really interesting about that point, and um, um, one of the reasons, you know, I, I gave very few interviews. In fact, it's noted somewhere that I, that I really wouldn't talk to the press um, at that point. And, I, and, and the reason I wouldn't is, but I would never have talked to them the way I'm talking to you about it now. Uh, because I felt like I was sitting there, you know, with the secret sauce and that everyone was going to want to know what were the responses, what were the costs, and I wasn't going to tell them. So I didn't think I'd make for a good story. Uh, but Ted Leonsis was once um, on a panel with someone from CompuServe. And um, the guy from CompuServe, and I don't remember who it was at the time, said to Ted, you guys are crazy, and that person running marketing has got to be a nutcase for the amount of money that you're spending on these discs. And Ted comes back and reports to me, reports this to me, and I said, next time someone says that, agree that I'm a dumb broad and that you've been trying to get me fired from the company for a long time and you haven't been able to figure out why you haven't been able to do that. Um <laughs> And the, and the reason for that really is the, 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 they weren't, I couldn't believe that they weren't trying it. And it was because they were making a really common, frightfully common mistake about not understanding the economics of the business. Um, in any business, I think the uh, people become very focused on costs I will always say to you that you never, you can't grow a company by cutting costs. Um, but there's always two sides to the equation. Okay, so if we go back even to that first campaign, or not even to that first campaign, if I'm spending, you know, five times as much on the marketing, but I'm getting 15 times the response and then factor in how much money I'm getting lifetime value. Um, you know, people were just not looking at the response piece of the equation. They were looking at, oh my God, it's costing her a buck fifty 
for each one of these packages as opposed to, you know, an average direct mail package, which might have been 30 cents. They're not looking at the true ROI that that's you can exactly, see. That's exactly correct. And it was, it, it was amazing. It was amazing to me. And it was one of the reasons I never talked to anyone. I, I, even internally, I didn't, you know, I talked to people. I had a lot of friends. But um, in terms of the numbers and so forth, I just didn't want people talking about it because I felt that it was such a rookie error, um, you know, on their part you know, to not be looking at it from that viewpoint that it was, it was astonishing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want to give anyone any little breadcrumbs or clues um, to that. And, and eventually I did see, and I thought I, I thought it would be the day that, that I probably have a coronary. Um, eventually I did see something that was done. Um, I don't, I, I think it was by Prodigy. They, they finally did something with the disc and I was like, okay, now we're really off to the races, and it didn't work for them. And um, I think that it was too little, too late. And I, th- I, I think there was also, in addition, in, in addition to um, brilliant marketing, which, I, I, and I go back and say, I had a brilliant team. They made me look good. Um, that it was also it was the product positioning. Um, our service was called America Online. Microsoft's service was called Microsoft Network. Mm-hmm. You know, it really showed the difference in the focus of the companies, in my view. Microsoft about Microsoft and AOL about customers, mm-hmm. you know, and, and more outward. And, and, you know, CompuServe was just sort of a geeky name. In a, in a similar vein, um, how about the the simplified pricing compared to competitors uh, uh, there were, uh, there was a lot of debate about that i think inside the company yeah there was but if we go back um we go back even before that when you talk about simplified pricing i will never forget the day we knew that prodigy and this was before we were unlimited um we knew the day that prodigy was going to be changing their pricing and at that point we had simple pricing it was a certain amount of of i don't remember what it was at the time um, you know, two ninety five an hour or something. Nineteen ninety five plus two ninety five or nine ninety five plus two ninety five. Um, you know, it's re- relatively straightforward um, pricing, albeit not unlimited. And Prodigy, you know, was at, at that time was still our, you know, main nemesis. And I was waiting for the pricing to come out and we're sitting in the marketing department and I get called into the vice president of marketing, a guy named Marshall Renz. And he says, look at this. And I look at the pricing they put out and it was a series of choices, arcane, you know, and I, it was, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was complicated. It was, you know, if you use it during the day or you can have a medium level, you can have this many hours for this bundled price. And, and it, and I just looked at it and I just looked at Marshall and I said, thank you. There's a God out there, you know, that they had made such a big tactical error, um, in making things so complicated. And again, not understanding that customers want stuff simple and easy. Um, so 
there was, you know, that where I felt that we dodged, uh, that we significantly dodged a bullet. Because wasn't it at, at some point it's, it's what is it, nine ninety five a month and then whatever it is hourly? Right. So it's just simple. It was, ours was really simple. And, and what Prodigy did at that time was they made three or, di- three or four different levels of pricing. And I, 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 I really, I was like screaming in the halls of the marketing department. I was so excited because it, it was it, it was tough. I mean, they could have come in and undercut us significantly. We weren't, you know, profitable at that point. Again, this is, you know, the earlier, you know, pre-unlimited days. And we were just starting to turn profitable. Well, shifting just a bit again, um, you know, so you guys are, are able to leap to the head of the pack and, and put right. Prodigy and CopyServe in your rear view. But at around this time when you're finally, you know, getting the, the traction you've always wanted, the the competitor on the horizon right. is is Microsoft and I I think I mean maybe it got credit at the time but AOL doesn't get enough credit for the fact that they really were one of the few that stared down Microsoft oh in an area and and came out uh, c- completely beat them yeah it, it was an amazing thing I remember um, you talk about another one of your podcasts the the meetings that took place where um, I wasn't at this meeting, so it was. I just know this from hearsay, but the hearsay was from a very high source. Um, and you know, this was a meeting in in which you know Gates basically, Bill Gates basically said, you know, I can buy you or bury you. I don't know if those was his exact words, but that was the content that I got out of it. And um, you know, I remember Steve and I having lunch shortly after that and I and I and it wasn't long after I had come to the company so I was really not so interested in in anyone purchasing us I was loving the company and um you know I just looked at Steve and I said well what are we going to do and he says I'm not selling um you know we're in it we're in it you know he had a vision he had a vision for this com- company that was way bigger um, in terms of its impact on the world and on terms of its impact on the culture than where we were at that point, and he was not going to give that up. The, the deal that we did was uh, we did an exclusive deal with Microsoft right? for them to be the exclusive browser on AOL, and mm-hmm. that was in exchange... Um, that was going to be an exchange for us having very prominent distribution on um, in the operating system. So it's curious to me, right? Because you you want to get you want to get the icon on the desktop of Windows right. ninety five, right? It's curious to me that that Gates. It's almost like he was so obsessed with with Netscape as a threat at that point that you know he 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 kneecaps MSN. And that sort of allows you guys the opening to to slide past them again because he, for for whatever reason, thought that Netscape was more of a threat than you guys were. I think that was part of it, but I also think that he had the Department of Justice breathing down his neck. On um, it was the Department of Justice on the anti uh, anti competition uh, anti competitive mm-hmm. um, monopoly stuff that was going on. So there was like a lot of. Um, there was a lot of pressure. I think there was a lot of pressure on them in, in that direction. And, and I also think, and I don't have, uh, you know, the best insight into this, but I also think that Microsoft was, you know, at the time fairly arrogant and 
felt that there wasn't anything that they couldn't later overcome. Um, you know, it was, you know, it was a really good deal for them and it was a fabulous deal for us. But there was a lot of consternation about it internally. There was a lot of discussion internally about, you know, choosing Netscape or choosing um, Microsoft. Well, and but Net or, or AOL has the advantage then of of writing the adoption of Windows ninety five because now that you're on the desktop, right? This is Windows ninety five is really when the computer does penetrate the home, and you guys get to be right the favored way that people get online for the first time. Right, and I remember, and I believe, and I, I now was scratching my memory, but I believe that the I. I probably shouldn't say this because I can't remember exactly, but I believe that the subscribers that we got from them were either free or very low cost. And we were getting 600,000 subscribers a year from that source. Hmm. I mean, it was huge. Yeah, that's, that's a sweetheart deal. <laughs> it was a sweet, it was a sweetheart deal, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't one that, you know, it, 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 it's sweetheart because of how it turned out. Right. <laughs> you know, but we could have been really, it, it could have backfired. Right. You're, you're dancing with the devil. You never really right. know. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and also, you know, from a, again, from a consumer viewpoint, there was an area that was starting to rumble a little bit. Um, even back then of, you know, we were becoming, not the anti-brand, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? We were the underdog. A lot of people liked us because we were the underdog. You know, some of our earliest adopters and most loyal, fiercest adopters came out of um, Apple and Mac. Um, and and that was what, you know, that was their culture too. I mean, as a group of, I'm not talking about the company now, but the consumers back then uh, were anti, a little bit anti-establishment, a little bit... Um, you know, wanting to be in the know and so forth. And um, uh, they were starting to hear rumblings about, you know, AOL was starting to become a little bit mass market. Um, you know, the Netscape really had the cachet for that group, for the early adopters and for the really net savvy people, um, an edgier, an edgier brand, um, so there, there was, there, there really was discussion, a lot of discussion about it. Mm -hmm. But, but it, it definitely worked out in spades, and oh, yeah. and that led to let's let's talk briefly about you know some of some of the growing pains, um, especially moving towards the 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 flat pricing, unlimited pricing. Is it true that at various times um, the the technical people would come to you and kind of say, "Hey, maybe ease off the gas a little bit. We can't handle all these all these new members that you're bringing in." Well, we um, in our first offices in Vienna, Virginia, we had a we had taken over offices that were owned by some high security firm. I don't remember who it was, and they had this big safe. I mean, huge safe, like like a room, like a small room. And uh, I was up there visiting some of the people, and that was on the technology floor. I was up there visiting some of the people in technology and some of the early, early people. Um, they, they, they 
sort of lured me into the room and I didn't know what it was and locked me in there um, and said, now stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All in, all in, all in jest, but yeah. um, But I had, I had, and still do. I mean, we're just out hiking last week. Um, I had an amazing relationship um, with one of the top geeks, uh, Matt Korn. Mm -hmm who really was responsible, and, and under him, Geraldine McDonald, also brilliant, responsible for doing what no man or woman had done before, and was building out this network. And, you know, Matt and I were really joined at the hip. And probably um, probably the best geek slash, you know, marketing relationship probably on the face of the earth, because the, traditionally these are two groups of people that don't exactly communicate that well with each other. And, um, you know, we, I remember sitting in his office and he'd be drawing diagrams. And like, I had, he was, he was, uh, my eyes were glazing over, but I, I felt like I had to sit there while he would draw a diagram on the whiteboard or the white wall that was explaining to me in terms I could never understand how we were going to get past 13,000 simultaneous users. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I owed it to him to sit there and be his audience as he sat and thought of it out loud kind of thing. I had no clue what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I mean, people would come and tell me to, you know, take my foot off the gas and um, I didn't. In that context, the the decision to go to unlimited usage, you know, unlimited per month um, right. flat pricing, man, that's ballsy because, you know, it could, I know that the thinking eventually was, well, we need to get mass adoption and then we can start making our money as a, you know, we can charge people to put their content on us and we can do e-commerce, we can do all these other things. But still, I mean, you're risking breaking the whole enterprise and, and kind of almost did. What, what Was there a huge debate about moving towards unlimited usage? Um, huge debate would be such an incredible understatement. Um and I'd have to say in the early days, I, I, this is where I, I give Steve like just enormous, enormous credit for for his vision and, and understanding. Um, he was on the right side of this, and that was to absolutely go unlimited. And I was not initially. Um, I had I had data. Um, I had projections of how much money we would lose because. You know, the, the company is growing rapidly and, you know, we're paying, you know, we're, we're, we're charging people for subscriptions. It's not like, a, a, it's not like, you know, we're trying to make it all on advertising at this point mm-hmm. and to just turn around and say, okay, let's just, you know, cut that off, uh, you know, and reduce it and so forth. We had so many people that were paying us, you know, 50, 60, $70 um, so for for a long time, you know, Steve and I had a lot of discussions about it, and there was the data and, and so forth. And um, he brought me over to his side, you know. He brought me over to his he brought me over to his side, but I have to say that it's a decision that um, that was very, very, very tough for the company, and it, it took its toll 
you know, all over the company because it, it was so controversial and had such a huge impact, not only on the finances, but I mean, it was like jumping off a cliff. Mm-hmm. Um, I had hoped that, and, and we did it right before our major campaigns and the we were doing mailings and campaigns all, you know, every month of the year. But the biggest sweet spot for us um, was in uh, was in the holiday time frame. And so it was my hope that we would sort of shore ourselves up by letting those campaigns go out at the regular, you know, pricing and then switching after we had the people on. Um, but there was a huge amount of pressure coming from the field and from competition um, and competition then, you know, becoming more of the unbranded ISPs um, that, you know, we just sort of held hands and pulled the trigger. Well, this is a bit of a leading question, but so in that post Christmas period when, you know, people are struggling to get online and there's all the bad press about America on hold, what, what is the feeling inside the company? Is it is it panic? Is it we're, if we just get enough time, we can get through this? Um, I think it's if we just have enough time, we can get through this. Um, but it would be hard to say that there was no panic. I mean, no one wants to no one wants to disappoint customers that much, and you know that's really you know that that's really what was happening. Mm-hmm. So. No, we weren't happy about it. I don't think we really anticipated. I know that we really didn't anticipate um, the extent of. We knew that it was going to be a problem, but we didn't anticipate the really the extent of it. Well, it, it definitely worked out for you in the end. Um, and we also didn't. We also didn't have a self awareness, you know, in a way because it's hard to describe this. We're growing, you know. We're not insular or insulated, but we don't really have a, a internalized grip on how important we were to people's daily lives. Mm-hmm. So what we so so what we didn't calibrate was the velocity or the ferociousness of the response. So we underestimated because you couldn't estimate, you know, what going on unlimited would do with that large number of people. Well, and in a way, ironically, it, it, it almost proves how big you had gotten because right. people were so desperate to use the service. It's like, okay, this proves that we're huge. It was, it was crazy and it was really enlightening and it really, you know, again, a little bit difficult to describe, but it was like, oh my God, people love us. They really love us. You know? Um, or at that point, they love-hated us. Right, right. Well, in the interest of not taking up too much of your time, let's, you know, let's let's stipulate that, you know, after after that period, you know, AOL is really, you know, dominant almost, you know, in the, in the late 90s and the dot-com era, you know, AOL is, you know, the, the prime player in terms of whatever this new online space is going to be. Um, I, I have to imagine that, you know that era was had to be incredibly personally satisfying when you're when you're starting to reach you know uh, twenty million subscribers and things like that. Yeah, and for me, um, I really I coined the phrase you know I bleed AOL blue I bleed you know my blood is blue 
um, and that was our company color. For me, it was what we were doing to the culture. It was, I, I remember, you know, saying, you know, no one can hide anymore. There can't be another Tiananmen Square, for those, you know, listening who might remember that, where, you know, a whole country is blocked out and has no news and no way of finding out that the whole world is watching. Um, you know, I, I would give I would give talks and I'd have a, a grandmother, I will never forget this, you know, come up to me, and this happened, you know, more than once, and say, you know, my kids, uh, my kids, grown kids moved to another state. I was in Pennsylvania at the time. They moved to where Ohio. And I thought that I would never just have the relationship with my grandkids that I would if, if they were, you know, around. They'd never see them, never talk to them. And she said, you know, AOL, I talk to these kids. I talk to them after school. We're instant messaging. We're emailing. She said, I have more contact with them now when they, than when they lived um, – when they live next door or mm-hmm. they live in the same town. And, uh, you know, or I talked to online because I had many personas um, online and I was I, I, I probably one of the executives who used the service the most. Um, and I was everywhere on the service. I was in every kind of chat room, um, you know, at one point or another, just poking around. And, and I befriended some guy who. Um, told me at some point, and he didn't know I worked for AOL, I was under some funky name, and he said that he that he thought AOL saved his life. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, he uh, was a um, police officer, and he was wounded in the line of duty, and he had very serious injuries, and he was really bedridden. He was really confined a lot of the time to his home. And he said in the beginning, you know, friends would come and other you know, of his coworkers would come and he said, but his life had become very circumscribed and, and, and didn't have a lot of company and that AOL was like a lifeline for him um, to talking to women online who said, you know, I'm bored, I'm home all day with the kids and they're taking a nap and I need some adult companionship and that's some adult conversation. Um, so that to the, you know, gay kid, and, you know, back then in Kansas City, who, who thinks he's probably the only gay person in Kansas and having a way to connect communities and people together from all over the country. Um, to me, the community aspect of AOL and how it has become, you know, t- to this day, part of people's culture, how you keep in touch with people, to me was the the most important thing. And... Um, that was the most gratifying. The fact that at 11 o'clock at night, my adorable niece um, would be IMing me and saying, you know, she's in Denver and I'm in Virginia, and she's saying, oh, I hate my family. And I'm like, oh, what's up? Oh, my mother won't let me do this or that or something else. And she says, well, can I run away to your place? And I said, of course, if you need to run away, <laughs> come to my place. Um, and, you know, it's just sort of adolescent angst and so forth. But I was able to be there in a way that she wouldn't have picked up a phone. You know, we were sitting there in IMing, And mm-hmm. that was happening millions of times over all across the world. And to me, that was um, the most important thing to me. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You mentioned uh, AIM, uh, Instant Messenger. Mm-hmm. Um, this is I haven't gotten to this chronologically in the podcast, but just briefly, I mean, how important do you think the ICQ uh, acquisition and eventually aim was to AOL in the later nineties going into the two thousands. I think it was huge. Um, I think, I think unfortunately with ICQ as with many acquisitions, we were so focused on the mother load of AOL that I think that, um, integrating, um, companies that we purchased or partnered, uh, that we purchased was not our strong suit. Um, so I, I think that everyone, you know, sort of felt, um, underutilized um, and, and possibly either under or overmanaged. But in terms of the instant messaging, I really think that it was the foundation of how we're all communicating with each other now. Mm-hmm. It is, um, you know, it's it, it, it's the predecessor towards to texting. Um, right. Facebook Facebook now, you know, has it's growing in popularity. Um, you know, its own form of, of instant messaging, as does, you know, as does Apple. Well, and, and that's my, I think that's what my thesis will be, is that it, that was almost, AIM was almost training people for social media. It right. has status updates. <clears throat> it has a social network of your, your buddy list, you know. That's exactly right. And, and so things like Snapchat, even like all that stuff, that instant, you know, messaging and texting and stuff like that, that's all AOL is training people or AIM is training people for that. Well, I, I looked at Snapchat. I looked at the purchase of Snapchat and I said, oh, it's like what we did. We did ICQ, mm-hmm. um, you know, and in the instance of ICQ, they were the largest um, internationally. Our footprint was huge. Um, almost, not not exclusively, but almost exclusively in you know in the United States or at least in the northern hemisphere, and um, you know ICQ was you know humongous internationally. Um, and briefly, uh, just some thoughts on on the the merger and its legacy. Do you remember when you you first started to hear rumblings that possibly you know AOL and Time Warner were were going to get together? Oh yeah, it was um, the weekend before the announcement. <laughs> and what what was what was the feeling and I, and I at AOL? Say, I say that in jest. There were no rumblings. Okay, right, I got you. This deal went down basically, and. Uh, the senior executives were on a phone call. I think the the, the night the night before it was going to be announced. It was very very closely held. And and what were the feelings inside AOL about this? Um, I, I'll speak for myself. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I came out of publishing, and uh, I, I came out of publishing, so I was very familiar with Time Inc. And in fact, a lot of the Early mentors that I discussed, um, you know, are timing people. They were fabulous training grounds in publishing. I was familiar with Time Warner. Um, uh, I really felt personally that it was brilliant conceptually and, again, enormous vision that we had the way they had amazing content. And let's not forget, they had 
you know, the cable company. And it was at a time where we were struggling to cut any kind of reasonable deal on broadband. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people will say to people will say to me, well, gee, why didn't you guys do broadband back then? And I, I sort of smacked my head and I said, oh, we never thought of that. <laughs> you know, we were struggling um, because these companies saw, um, you know, the, especially the, the phone company analogs, saw that we had turned them into dumb pipes, you know, essentially with AOL, and they weren't going to let that happen again. Uh, and we we just could not, the deals that we were able to cut were just just crazy and expensive and um, uh, unaffordable, and it was a it was horrible. So the, the notion of getting a cable company was was brilliant, um, and the content that came with Time Warner, um, you know, was amazing. And, and AOL had had a long history of content partnerships with, with right. Time Inc. Yeah, actually, actually, I was part of the the first one, um, the first one that we did with Time Inc., um, uh, which is in, in sort of an interesting early story that that talks about. Um, how we how we changed um time inc had time inc had all the content and i had most of the a, a lot of the way we were able to get content onto the service was through my budget so the only people who really had substantial especially in the beginning substantial budgets uh were me and marketing and um uh, the technology group for building out the network and everyone else had to sort of just figure out how to get money. And, and, and I don't mean that, you know, so literally, but that, that's where the big pockets of money went. Mm-hmm. And what we would do with content providers was we would um, charge them for being on the service, but let them earn it back in marketing bounties. So, um, and but Time Inc. came to us and they wanted, um, you know, they wanted you know, some, some kind of payments and the person who was in charge of, you know, cutting the deal, um, called me up. And this was at a time where we didn't have any major, in my view, any major consumer brands on, on the service. We had an encyclopedia. I don't remember. I think it was world book or might've been Britannica at the time. Um, and we had a lot of the PC magazines and the Mac magazines, the computer oriented stuff. Um, but we didn't have really a lot in the big brand consumer. And I remember saying to this, this Jonathan Bulkley, um, don't come home without Time Inc. You know, in other words, I'm willing to pay whatever it takes to get Time Inc. so I can put it into my advertising and help broaden us as a consumer platform, as a consumer brand. Two years later, um, AOL has grown um, we're now again in a bidding war uh, for uh, Time Inc. And Jonathan comes back with me, uh, comes back to me again, the same thing. And, you know, they want two million bucks. Um, are you willing to pay that much? And I said, come home. I said, let CompuServe or Prodigy have them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's just during that period of time, how we had become much more of a consumer brand. It was at that inflection point. Uh, but getting back to the original question in terms of how did I feel about it, um, I knew the culture. And it's a very, very different culture. They were they became very successful at um, a very decentralized kind of organization. 
where everyone was on sink or swim. Uh, there was no, they didn't use the word synergy. Uh, probably the most often used word in their vocabulary was, we can't do this because it's not politic or political. Um, the AOL environment was so completely different. It was all about, um, it was all about, it was all about working together. It was all about the mother load. Um, <clears throat> I would sit there in a room with <clears throat> person who was in charge of um, what essentially would be ad sales or interactive marketing, and the person's in charge of business development. You know, Maya Burlow and, and David Colburn, and me in marketing. And we'd look at a big deal, and we would figure out what was best for the company in terms of how that deal got expressed or how we structured the deal. Um, you know, did we was it better for us to? Uh, it, in a complicated deals, you can you can have the outcomes be you, you know go in many different directions. Was it better for marketing, or was it to, to give marketing the PNL? Was it better to give it some interactive marketing? And we'd sit there and have that discussion, and and, and it was a discussion. It was not a fight. It was what was going to be better for the company. If you sat in a meeting and someone was being really obtuse, you know, I might say something like, "Oh, didn't they give you stock options when you joined the company?" You know. <laughs> We were we were really at the senior levels. There was a lot of craziness that went on below that, but at the senior levels, we were really very focused on you know on working together. Um, that was a very different, very different culture than you know these brilliant and fabulously successful brands that Time Warner had that were operating mostly in silos. So. It was a humongous clash of centralized versus, you know, decentralized. So maybe it's it's just ultimately a case of the culture just made integration ultimately impossible, maybe. I You know, I think so. And I think that, you know, again, I'll speak for myself. And, and I know if you talk to the there – were, there were other things that went on. I mean – at the point of at the point in time of the merger, we also had you know the dot com bust, and what had happened also on the Time Warner side is that all of a sudden they had these AOL options and their pensions and so forth. And this is just me speaking; it's mm. not you know all of a sudden they're looking at their pensions and stock options and and so forth that aren't worth what they were. And this is, and this is coincident, almost coincident with them merging with us. And so I think that there was a great feeling that if they just had stayed time Warner, you know, their pensions would not be worth now 50% of what they were before. So it's real. I mean, you can understand where some of the angst came from. And then, you know, we were, AOL was, you know, riding on top of the world. I'm sure we had our own form of arrogance. Um, you know, in terms of feeling like you're, you know, you know, ruling the roost essentially, and they're an old line company, and this upstart company comes and buys them. Basically, mm. we call it a merger, but we really purchase them. Right. You know, so I mean, there were there were a lot of um, there were a lot of reasons even at the time, um, uh, you know, that you could see that things were, you know, were were not going to work. I mean, I couldn't get. I couldn't get people from the cable company. I, I at some point was charged with providing free customers to the cable company 
Um, in other words, I'd be advertising, I would be using the AOL platform and, and associated products to advertise um, for the cable companies and hand them the subscribers free. And that was really intended to be a demonstration mm -hmm. of the power of what could happen working together. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, there were times I couldn't get people to answer my phone call, you know. And, and as you said in the beginning, and I'm not saying this to, you know, to sort of toot my own horn, but there was the perception that I was sort of the marketing queen of, of, of the era. Mm -hmm. And to not be able to get a phone call return, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. Um, from inside your company when you want to give them free subscribers. I mean, it was a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit crazy now. I'm sure that they were very busy with other things. But um, and, and that we did things probably on the AOL side that, um, you know, we had, our own, as I said, we had our own form of arrogance that, that probably, you know, was not respectful of, um, you know, the, the stature of the kind of company that we were being, that, that we were associated with. Right. Uh, do you still have a role uh, with AOL today? No, I don't. Okay. When did when did you called if if called I would serve. Right. When, when did you when did you end up when did you end up leaving? Pardon. When did you end up leaving AOL? Um, I left a couple of years. I, I, I you know I can never remember this either. Um, it was in the early two thousands, probably two thousand three ish. And then I had I hadn't I left, but I had an association with the company for you know for a while. Mm -hmm. So I think you know the association probably ended around two thousand four, two thousand five. Well, the the fun thing about a lot of these interviews, especially from this era, is that you know a lot of this stuff is exactly twenty years ago right now. So I know I like to I like to kind of end up by by asking you know uh, when you look back at. at at what you were doing at that time, what you were able to achieve, you know, has the technology world, uh, you know, been everything that you imagined it would be? Has, has, has it become what you thought it would be more than you thought it would be? Or, or we still have room to grow. What do you think of when you look back on, you know, 20 years and stuff? Well, I, I think it has fulfilled a lot of, uh, I think it's fulfilled a lot of what we thought. I think in terms of the media, you know, converging, especially, which was not so clear back then. But in terms of, you know, I watched I watched TV on my, my computer. I have like a huge, huge TV in my house. And, 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 you know, half the time I'm watching on my computer and the other half I'm watching on my, you know, mini iPad. Uh, so in terms of the media converging, I think in terms of the ubiquity um, of the um, Internet and the access, I think that that absolutely um, the place where I'm um, still uh, disappointed and, and hopeful that, it, you know, this this will change is um, I really like the idea of the democratization of information. I think that people having information, I'm not talking now about privacy, but I'm talking about information. Um, people having information um, uh, makes them stronger, better better citizens, better consumers, um, better educated. And, you know, I still think in this country there is a significant um, digital divide. And certainly as we look to developing countries where, um, you know, the Internet is not available um, or it's easily turned off by, 
it's easily turned off by regimes who don't want uh, people to have access to the news. Uh, I find that I find that disappointing. Um, but I think that that's I, th- I think that the vision that I had in those early days uh, for me, which was there can't be a Tiananmen Square again, where um, it hasn't come soon enough, but I think it is coming. I, I just don't think that I, I just don't think the government's going to be able to keep um, information away from um, its citizens, um, and, and they, they're not going to be able to keep the outside world out um, of their countries in, indefinitely. And so that's sort of what would drive me. Well, Jan, thank you so much for taking the time to remember all this for us. It's, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thank you. If you're enjoying this podcast, there's one simple thing that you can do to help us out. If you do nothing else, just go to iTunes and rate us. One to five stars takes about two seconds. Or give us a review because... The weird way that iTunes works is it's not just the number of downloads, it's also the number of ratings and reviews. As always, you can join the conversation at www.internethistorypodcast.com, get more info, see pictures, and see my full bibliography for each episode. The show's Twitter is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. wondered how to say good morning in Italian or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.